Well, I don't know if you know that today, or if you even care, some of you may not care at all, but today is Super Bowl Sunday, right? Uh, it's kind of a big game on. Some of you are like, I don't, I don't care. Uh, some, it's, you know, it's a day to celebrate football's biggest game and watch the game. Uh, some don't care about the game at all. They only want to watch the commercials. Uh, some don't care about the commercials or the game. They want to watch the halftime show, although that number seems to be decreasing more and more as time goes on. Uh, some of you don't care about any of the game. You just want to watch the Puppy Bowl. How many of you don't even know what the Puppy Bowl is? You didn't even know there was a Puppy Bowl. Some of you do know. Uh, it's on Animal Planet this afternoon if you want to watch the Puppy Bowl. Probably will not be watching that. Uh, I will not be, but you're welcome to, uh, to do that. But any way you slice it, pun intended, uh, Super Bowl Sunday is about one thing more than any other thing, more than any of those things. It is about eating ridiculous amounts of food. Uh, did you know that Super Bowl Sunday is second behind one day of the year, that is Thanksgiving Day, as the most food uh, consumed? In fact, because of what we eat typically on Super Bowl Sunday as compared to what we eat on Thanksgiving um, we take in more calories on Super Bowl Sunday than we do on Thanksgiving. So how much food will be eaten? Some of you may have seen some of these stats. It's, it's mind-boggling. Um, let me just give you a few of them. 278 million avocados will be eaten. 1.4 billion, that's billion with a B, chicken wings will be scarfed down. 10 million pounds of ribs 12.5 million pounds of bacon and 14 million hamburgers will be eaten. 11.2 million pounds of chips will be consumed. 3.8 million pounds of popcorn will be eaten. And of course, pizza, right? 12.5 million pizzas, not slices of pizza. 12.5 million pizzas will be ordered today for Super Bowl Sunday which doesn't take into account all the frozen pizzas that people may or may not be eating. And all of that doesn't even include all of the other foods and snacks and desserts that will be consumed as well. That is a lot of food, which is probably why antacid sales will be up by about 20% tomorrow. So, um, Well, we are in the midst of a series called The Good Life, in which we're walking through Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapters 5 through 7. And I was thinking of all of that food uh, this week. Hopefully you're good and hungry now. Um, but I was thinking of all that food as it pertains to what we are going to look at this week as we come to Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 5, verse 6, where he says this, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. As I mentioned last week, one of the things that I've become acutely aware of, and I've, I've studied the Beatitudes before, but it's, you know, when you really get into to stuff, you, you're just reminded of these things. And I, I've, I've been reminded over the, these past several weeks about how interconnected truly the Beatitudes really are. The, the, these words at the beginning of Matthew chapter 5 uh, that Jesus speaks that we often refer to as the Beatitudes. For instance, Jesus says, very first one in verse three, blessed are the poor in spirit. And so we, we see our broken condition and our helplessness and our powerlessness in the face of it. Then he says, blessed are those who mourn. We, we grieve and mourn over our broken condition and over the broken condition of this world that we live in. And, and, and it causes us, hopefully, 
to repent and to turn to God. And then as we talked about last week, Jesus says, blessed are the meek. And so this, this spiritual poverty and this realization of our brokenness results in a meek and gentle and yielding spirit that accepts and submits to God's will wholly and completely. And then as we're going to look at today, that flows right into blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And I mentioned this last week that when we hunger and thirst for righteousness, we we hunger and thirst for for a righteousness that begins with us and in us. It's not that we don't see and, 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 and hunger, for a thirst, or hunger and thirst for righteousness in our world around us. We do. That's part of it. But it begins with us. Because if it doesn't begin with us, so often we import a, uh, uh, you know, this, this anger and this judgmental attitude that, that doesn't need to be there. But when we, we start with ourselves, that brings about a humility and a meekness and a gentleness that we talked about last week. And so we start by hungering and thirsting for our righteousness. But what exactly does Jesus mean when he talks about hungering and thirsting for righteousness? That's what I want to talk about for just a few moments today. Typically when we talk about righteousness, we, we talk about it in terms of, of kind of a virtue, you know, right and wrong, and as it relates to us being right or wrong, being righteous or unrighteous. In other words, a lot of times when we talk about righteousness, we talk about it in, in terms of our standing before God. Either we are doing right or we are doing wrong. That because of our sin, we are unrighteous before God, and yet because of Jesus, we stand before God as righteous. And all of those things are wrapped up in what it means, what righteousness means. All of that's very true, but that's only one dimension of righteousness. If you remember a few weeks ago, we talked about how uh, the people that Jesus was speaking to would have been brought up on, you know, we, we have the, the whole Bible, right? We have Old Testament and New Testament. Well, the people that Jesus was speaking to, the New Testament isn't in existence yet, right? And so they, what they know is the Old Testament. They know the, the, the law and they know the, the, the prophets and they grew up hearing what the prophets had to say about a lot of these subjects, including righteousness, with the, which the prophets had a lot to say about that. And when you read through the Old Testament prophets, what you see is that righteousness was often synonymous with justice. And so you see justice and righteousness very much go together. In fact, in the Old Testament, a, a Jewish person, which Jesus was, when they talked about righteousness or justice or straight, as in straightening something out, all three of those words have the same root Hebrew word. They all come from the same Hebrew word, meaning they're all kind of intertwined and intertangled. Now, today, when I say justice, most of us think of a courtroom and a judge and a gavel and a criminal justice system and somebody who's guilty, who needs to be punished, justice. And and that can be one part of justice, but that's just a narrow part of justice as well. The picture of justice in the Bible is a much bigger story. Justice doesn't just refer to catching someone who's, who's done something wrong and punishing them. Justice also refers to taking a wrong situation and making it right. Hold on to that because we'll come back to that in just a moment. For example, in the book of Leviticus, if you were caught stealing something from someone, you had to pay back not only the value of what you stole, but also you had to pay on top of that a fifth of the value to that person. That was called restitution. Restitution was a principle uh, of not just catching the wrongdoer and, and making sure that they had to pay back what they had done and punishing them, but also seeing to it that the innocent person who had lost something had it returned to them. 
and, and that the situation was made right. Is that making sense so far? And again, think of justice, think of ri- righteousness, they're all intertangled. Now let's just take justice out of the, the realm of crime altogether, because in the Old Testament, things like feeding the hungry, caring for the needy, freeing those in bondage, things like that were expressions of justice as well. Because you were taking a wrong situation, something that was not right, and making it right. Taking someone who is hungry, someone who is in need, someone who is in bondage and freeing them. You were making what was wrong, taking what was wrong, and making it right. And so justice doesn't just have to do, and righteousness uh, subsequently, does just have to do with catching a wrongdoer and punishing them. Biblically, justice and righteousness has to do, and here's the first point, has to do with taking what is wrong and making it right. Biblically, righteousness, justice, has to do with taking what is wrong and making it right. That's why caring for the elderly and, and those in need is a righteousness issue. Attempting to, to help save a marriage and, and, and mend a relationship, that's a righteousness issue. Helping someone find freedom from addiction and struggle, that's a righteousness issue. Helping a family experience forgiveness and reconciliation, that's a righteousness issue. The list goes on and on and on. And the reason why I want us to grasp this and and get a hold of this is because a lot of times we think of righteousness as in terms of of doing what is right and and not doing what is wrong. And that that is part of the definition of righteousness, but that's just one part of the definition of righteousness. Righteousness also involves us taking wrong situations and attempting to make it right in our lives and in our world. And so when Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, another way of saying that or another way of maybe translating that would be, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for wrong things to be made right in our lives and in our world, for they will be filled. But here's the next question, and it's a big one. When we talk about making things right, right according to whom, right? Because that's kind of a big thing to talk about. We can talk about making things right, but my definition of right may be different than your definition of right, and certainly in a lot of ways the world's definition of right is very different from my definition or your definition of right. Because Jesus is not just promising that things will be made right according to any preference or any standard, specifically our own preferences or standards. This isn't some self-help verse. Rather, Jesus, when he talks about right and, and righteousness and rightness, he's talking about it from God's perspective. When Jesus talks about hungering and thirsting for righteousness, he's talking about hungering and thirsting for things to be made right by God's definition of right. The way God defines what is right and what is wrong and how we go about making those things right. In fact, what the whole Sermon on the Mount is going to do is describe what this righteousness looks like in in everyday life. Like, it's not just a a, a list of do's and don'ts, but it's 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 a blueprint for how we make life and this world right according to how God defines it. Now, I think all of us would echo and say, yeah, preacher, Josh, whatever you call me. Um, I know that, and I'll echo that. The problem is, if we're truly honest, we, we don't always like that, right? So we can talk about things being made right according to God's standards, and all of us sitting here at church, right, we would echo that. And then we walk out the doors, and our life doesn't always reflect that. We, we don't always like that. 
Because usually I define right as what works out best for numero uno, right? For me. That, that's usually how I define right. And so it can be a bit of a struggle and a reality check. Because so often there's, there's a little too much of what I want. And what's going to work out for me that makes up my definition of what's right and things being made right. But ultimately, it is good news. As much of a struggle and as hard as it is sometimes for our spirits to want it, it is good news that things are going to be made right by God's standards. Because if we have things according to our own preferences and our own desires, it'll wind up destroying us, or at the very least, it will not fill you. Now, some of you know that from experience. Some of you are learning that. I'm learning that and know it and yet still have to learn it over and over again. That's the reality of our human nature, right? But the reality is, at the very least, it's not going to fill us. And at the very worst, it's going to end up destroying us. And certainly we, I, I in no way want to be judgmental of anybody else because I struggle with this. But we don't have to look very far in our culture, right? I mean, you look around at, at our world and you see people who seemingly have everything. By the world's definition, life is right. They have everything that, that, that they need to, to have the right things in life and to have the right kind of life. They have everything at their fingertips. And yet when you truly look at their lives, it's a train wreck, right? And oftentimes they're actually destroying themselves right in front of the whole world as well as modeling for us that having everything right according to our own preferences and desires is not truly going to fill us in the end. What it will do, however, is leave you with a continual lust for more and more and more. It never, ever satisfies. And that's just one example of why it's good news that God makes things right according to his standards and not ours. Because here's the deal. Even though we keep believing the lie, even though we know the truth, we keep believing the lie that that we need to have things according to our own preferences and our own standards in, in order for us to be filled. The reality is that things being made right, righteousness is the only thing, according to God's standards, righteousness by God's standards is the only thing that will truly fill us. Now, we know that deep down, and we'll talk about why we know that in just a second, but again, it's, it's hard. It's this struggle. It's this tension in our Lives. And so, again, getting to that subject matter, here's the next question. Why? Why is it that things being made right according to God's standards is what will ultimately fill us as opposed to being made right by our standards? Well, I think part of it is that you and I are made in the image of God's righteousness in the first place. That, that, that's how we were made. We were made in the image of God. You are made from his righteousness and you are made for his righteousness. Inside each of us, we have this divine DNA. In other words, we have this appetite for the righteousness of God. We all have this appetite for things to be made right. The problem is that our appetite for the righteousness of God gets kind of suppressed because we develop other appetites over the course of living in this fallen world. I read an article um, not too long ago that was talking about a problem that is continuing to rise in our national park systems where all the forest animals, so many of the forest animals, are they're finding them on the brink of starvation. And one of the big reasons why they're finding them on the brink of starvation is because they've lost the capacity to digest natural vegetation because they're all living off of this diet of carb-loaded junk food that's been left behind at various campgrounds and campsites by people, by human beings. 
And because of that, these animals are dying early deaths. One park ranger put it this way. He said, our junk food is the crack cocaine of the animal kingdom in our national parks. And in many ways, that's what happens to our appetite for righteousness over time. It becomes suppressed by other appetites for other junk food options when it comes to what life is all about and what will truly fill us in the end. And yet as dulled and suppressed as it can get sometimes, the the reality is that that appetite still comes leaking through at times. For instance, people will say, yeah, I don't really have, you know, there's no objective right and wrong. There's no moral objectivity. It's just whatever is right for you or whatever is right for you. People will say that, But all of a sudden, people get really upset and concerned about helping in certain areas of what they deem to be injustice. And so on one hand, we we may echo a a thought of of moral subjectivity, and yet we're very objective about certain things that we find to be wrong. A child being abused, people starving and suffering, people needing help in the wake of some tragedy or disaster— and, and, and they think of those things as objectively wrong, right? Isn't that interesting? You know, on one hand, you know, people will say, well, there, there's no real right and wrong. And yet on the other hand, they'll point out, oh, but this is wrong. Now, I'm, I'm not saying that to, to, to cast aspersions, but I'm saying that to say, isn't that interesting? That on one hand, we'll say that and yet recognize something else as being wrong. And those are, like, those are wrong things, right? Let's not confuse that. But where does that come from? Where does that instinct come from to to want to help a child who's being abused or to help feed someone who's starving and suffering or to help someone who's dealing with a tragedy or disaster? Where does that come from? You say you don't believe in God or in an objective right or wrong, an absolute right or wrong, but somehow there's part of you that knows that certain things should not be the way they are. Where do we get that from? I think we get that from our appetite that we were created in the image of. We were made in the image of his righteousness. As we follow God, that appetite gets stimulated more and more. And as we walk away from him, that appetite gets stimulated less and less. And the more we live in light of it and according to it, the more of a filling we experience. Speaking of being filled, let me leave you with some food for thought today as it pertains to hungering and thirsting for righteousness. I've got two things for you um, this morning. The first is this. When it comes to being filled with the righteousness that we truly all crave, we need the bread of life. We need the bread of life. And I'm speaking, of course, of Jesus. As Jesus says of himself in John chapter 6, verse 35, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me Listen to this language. It sounds very similar. Will never go hungry. And he who believes in me will never be thirsty. The language from Jesus here in John chapter 6 and specifically in Matthew chapter 5 about being filled implies that we're receiving something from someone outside of ourselves. We're not the ones who provide the, 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 the satiation of our hunger. We're not the ones who provide the filling. That filling comes from outside of us. And the reality is that, that ultimately things can't be made right within ourselves or in the world around us without Jesus. And I'm not just talking about his salvation 
And, 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 and again, what we've talked about from the very beginning, it's not just about what happens to us after we die. I'm talking about right here, right now. How does this impact our lives? Things cannot be made right without his life, without his teachings, without his wisdom, certainly without his death and his resurrection, without his spirit. That's why scripture speaks in places like Romans. These aren't in, uh, on the screen, but Romans chapter 5 verse 17 talks about the gift of righteousness that we've been given in Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 30 talks about how Jesus has become our righteousness. Philippians chapter 1 verse 11 talks about us being filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. And again, these verses aren't just talking about me being righteous when I stand before God one day, when I take my last breath, or if this world comes to an end, whichever one happens first. It's not just talking about what happens when I stand before God, before him in heaven one day. These verses are also talking about the capacity of Jesus, his life, his teaching, his wisdom, his death, his resurrection, his spirit, to make things right in our lives today. We don't have to wait. We don't have to wait until the grave and Jesus coming again for things to start to be made right, for a little bit of heaven to come to earth, and for broken things to be made whole. That begins in Jesus Christ today. And apart from Jesus, you and I don't have the resources in and of ourselves to compete with the nature and the problem of sin in our lives and the complexity of darkness in this world. We need Jesus. Now, I know that seems oversimplified, but we forget it so often, just like I forget the songs that the kids sing. That we need him. Things can't be made right without him. And by the way, again, as we've talked about, this is where that you see that connection between the Beatitudes. In particular, this is where hungering and thirsting for righteousness goes all the way back to verse 3. That, that, that idea of the poor in spirit. Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. And as we've talked about, being poor in spirit means that, that we have that realization that we are broken beyond our capacity to fix ourselves. We realize that we don't have what it takes in and of ourselves to make it work, to fix ourselves, to meet our needs, to, prepare, to repair our condition. And it's when you and I are in touch with how broken we truly are and how broken this world truly is and that we don't have what it takes to fix the mess that we are in in and of ourselves that's when you get hungry for the bread of life. If you don't realize that, you're not hungry for the bread of life. You're hungry for a whole lot of other things. You get hungry for his teaching and his life, for his wisdom. I need his death, his resurrection. I need his spirit. The more aware we are of our brokenness and the brokenness of this world around us and the fact that we don't have what it takes, the more famished I get for the king and his kingdom. I think a lot of times we, we lose our appetite for the king and his kingdom because we lose our awareness of how broken we truly are. But when we are in touch with how broken we are and how broken this world is that we live in, suddenly our appetite for the things of God, the righteousness of God, for God to make things right as he defines it, gets stimulated. We get hungry for him, and we realize that without him and his wisdom, we're going to starve to death. And so our appetite for the king and his kingdom and for his righteousness is tied to our awareness of how broken we truly are and how much we need the bread of life. You know, it's interesting. One of the things that when, when someone is sick or in the hospital, one of the, 
the cues, it's not the only cue, but one of the cues that they're getting better, that you're feeling better, is that your appetite comes back, right? Many of you have been sick and, and dealing with different things. Your appetite starts to come back, and you know that there's some improvement coming. Fortunately, I've had to spend plenty of times in hospice rooms and hospital rooms where you see the end is near, right, when that person has stopped eating and stopped drinking. And I think one of the great clues when it comes to evaluating our own spiritual health is to ask ourselves, what is my appetite for the king and his kingdom? I mean, is your appetite for him satiated by an hour here on a Sunday morning? Maybe read a, a verse or two throughout the week? Like, like what, what fills you? <laughs> what, what's your appetite for the king and his kingdom, because there's a relationship between our hunger for him and our awareness that things won't be right, can't be right, without him. And then secondly, and I'll close with this, we need to continually feed our appetite for righteousness. All too often, the reality is that you and I can lose our appetite for God and not even know it. Right? We can show up on a Sunday morning and we look the part and we know the right words and we put on this facade. And again, I'm not, I, my, my point is not to crush you this morning, but to hopefully make you think and come to a better awareness, to make myself come to a better awareness. But it's so easy for my diet to shift from hungering and thirsting for God's righteousness to hungering and thirsting for a whole bunch of other things. And so many of us live our lives thinking that we're really filled when in reality we're really not. It's as though we're living on a diet, and some of you are going to like this diet, but it's as though we're living on a diet of donuts and cotton candy. Again, some of you would love to live on this diet for the rest of your life. Uh, but what I mean by that is it's empty calories, right? It's, 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 it's not really going to fill. Now, the, the reality is it will fill for a moment, you stuff your face with donuts and cotton candy, and you're going to be full, not to mention you're going to be on an insane sugar high. Um, but eventually, you're going to come down from that sugar high, and you're going to be hungry again, and you're probably going to need a nap and an insulin shot to go with it. But um, in the end, it doesn't fill, right? It's, it's empty calories. It's not, it, it fills momentarily, and that's, the, that's part of the struggle with it, right? It fills momentarily. And it may taste good in the moment, but it's not ultimately going to fill us. And when we tend to pursue other things more than we pursue the king and his kingdom, the dangerous thing is that it can fill momentarily. But it's only going to leave me hungering for more and more of that junk that the world tries to offer us. So often we take the hunger pains of our soul's for God and his kingdom, and we attempt to satisfy them and fill them with the morsels of this world, the crumbs of this world that only leave us frustrated and feeling empty. One of the hard things about living in our culture is that we can live our lives on a spiritually empty calorie diet and not even know it, not even realize how empty 
we are because we have so many options when it comes to entertainment and activities and events and all of these things going on in our lives that we can spend all of our time and our energy and resources on this. And it's so easy to stay busy and just intake, intake, intake where we never really stop and think. And all the while we're living on an empty calorie diet and we grow more and more frustrated every day, every week, every month, every year. And I don't need any amens to know that is the reality. Being a Christian in America in many ways has come to mean pursuing happiness with a side order of religion. That's a lot of people's view of, of what it means to be a Christian in America. And I, you know, the way I, I sell a book or make a million is to promise you happiness. Here's happiness, and then I baptize it in Jesus and a little bit of religion. That kind of book shoots rockets up to the, the, the bestseller list. Because somewhere along the way, we've bought into a document that our forefathers created more than the promises of Jesus. A document that says life, liberty, and the pursuit of what? Happiness. That's what I hunger and thirst for. That's what is going to fill me, right? And what happens in the end is that we stamp that as Christianity, and our distractions soon become our obsessions. And the God who was at one time our passion has now just become an obligation, another thing on our list. It's no wonder our lives can be so full and yet in reality be so empty. After all, like the old saying goes, you are what you eat, right? You are what you eat. It's no secret that we all need more of God and his kingdom in our diet, right? All of us would affirm that. That's not a secret. Maybe the secret is this, we all need more of an appetite for those things. We all need more of a hunger for those things, a thirst for those things. Because blessed are those who hunger and thirst for his righteousness, for they will be filled.